found near the end of the Old Testament. In fact, the easiest way to find it might be to turn to Matthew in the New Testament and go back a couple books through Malachi and Zechariah to Haggai, reading the first nine verses of chapter 2 this morning. On the sermon notes page is a bit of an outline of our timeline of history, also an outline of the sermon points, but um, if that's helpful to you, Haggai is prophesying a number of uh, a decade and a half or two decades after they've come back from captivity in Babylon, and uh, the temple project had stalled, and Haggai comes to stir up the people to get back to work on the, the temple rebuilding project, because the Babylonians had destroyed the temple 50 years now, 65 years earlier. I'd like to read Haggai 2, the first nine verses, hearing the word of God through his prophet here. Haggai 2, verse 1. In the seventh month, on the 21st of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while, and I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. Let's bow before the Lord and ask for his blessing on his word. O God in heaven, we are humbled that the Lord of hosts speaks to his people, to us, sinful people, needy people. Small people, and you speak, Lord, with grace, with mercy, with power, and with hope. And we pray that you'd visit us today through the prophecy of Haggai, through your living word, through the spirit of the living Christ, that we might, Lord, be strengthened in our Lord Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Well, congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, some of you have perhaps read the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis or have seen a performance, a drama performance in which the monologue is, is acted out. But if you don't know anything about the screw tape letters, it's, it's a book by C.S. Lewis in which he imagines a senior demon mentoring a junior demon, screw tape, helping his nephew Wormwood with how to deal with the life of a human. And in the second letter, 
screw tape expresses to Wormwood his great dissatisfaction that Wormwood's quote-unquote patient has become a Christian. But then screw tape says, we need not despair for many who have become Christians have quickly fallen away and been regained for, for Satan. And he says, this senior demon to the junior demon, he says, one of our great allies at present is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her spread out through all time and space and root in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That I confess is a separate, or excuse me, that I confess is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it is quite invisible to these humans. The church is our ally in regaining the soul that's been lost to Christ, the demon says. Not the church as it really is, spread through time, rooted in eternity, but the church as this new convert will see it. When he comes into the congregation with these thoughts of the body of Christ, and then he sits in the pew next to somebody who sings off tune or wears squeaky boots or has a double chin. That, he says, will be the downfall. The glorious church to to hold the titles of Scripture in mind is one thing, but when he sees the people, when he's around these, these people, then we might expect that he'd be filled with disappointment. In fact, he tells the junior demon that life is like that in so many ways. Two lovers are excited to get married. It's so spectacular, but when they get married, then the work of marriage comes. Living with a sinner, and they're disappointed. So in the church. Well, congregation, I bring that up because as we come to Haggai chapter 2, we're dealing with a people of disappointment and truly a people who are being worked upon by Satan. The Lord has brought his people back from captivity. They had 16 years earlier started rebuilding the temple because Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the former temple of Solomon. They had laid the foundation. There was, among some of them, great joy and excitement. But they laid the task aside. Now they've taken it up again, but they're about to give up again. And God's people face discouragement. They face disappointment across the ages. And we, we, we face it ourselves, don't we? This is all very applicable, isn't it? Obviously applicable to our own lives, lives that often face discouragement. We face it in the church. Faced in terms of evangelism and missions, we are eager to get out there, but then we invite people to church and they don't come, or they come and they don't stay. Maybe in our own service to the church, we pour ourselves into it, but we don't see the fruit we expect. It's not appreciated, it doesn't do much, and we want to give up. We, we discover this sometimes in our own homes, in the work of marriage, or the work of raising children, or the work of loving our parents. And we face this in our own sanctification, right? Our own struggles against sin. We repent of our sin, we set out to never do it again, and then we fall into the same sin and we think, is it all worth it? What's this all come to? But notice this morning, the Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord of encouragement, of strengthening, of giving fresh courage to his people. And here the Lord encourages his disheartened people to persevere in the temple building. 
I'd like to look at this passage, Haggai 2, 1 through 9, under three headings. The first one is this, that Christ seeks his people. He seeks his people in the middle of their discouragement. We've been following this theme of the coming glory, and we saw the glory come to the tabernacle, and then the glory fill Solomon's temple, and then we saw in Ezekiel the glory leave the temple when God's wrath came on his people. But then last week we saw in Ezekiel the the prophecy of a a glorious temple. Now Ezekiel prophesied to the people in captivity in Babylon and he was carried off some years before Jerusalem was destroyed. Remember Nebuchadnezzar originally took some captives but he, he let Jerusalem stand and he set a king over it and so forth. But eventually they rebel and Nebuchadnezzar is furious and he, he comes with wrath upon Jerusalem and he burns down the house of God. He burns down the palaces in Jerusalem. He topples the walls of the city. He kills many of the people. He carries others ones away captive. But then 50 years later, something happens. Nebuchadnezzar, well, Babylon loses power. And Cyrus the Persian captures Babylon and now purges the world power. And Cyrus tells the Jews, you can go home and you can rebuild the temple to your God. And so a few of them came home. And as I said, they laid the foundation, then they lost hope, and they gave up the work. And then Haggai came, and in his first message in chapter 1, he brings a word of rebuke in chapter 1 because he says, look, you're all running after your own houses. You're paneling your houses, and the Lord's house lies in ruins. You've got your priorities wrong. And they're stirred up by that, and they repent. And so they go now to start building the house of God, And here in chapter 2, it's just a month later, and now we discover they're discouraged. They're discouraged. What's happened? Well, some of the older saints had actually been present at Solomon's temple. They had seen it. Some maybe in their 70s or 80s or 90s had, had memories of Solomon's temple in all of its glory. And the Lord asked them in verse 3, Who's left among you who saw the temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now in comparison with it? Is this not in your eyes as nothing? And they say, yes, it's nothing in our eyes. In fact, we read in Ezra chapter 3 that 16 years earlier when they laid the foundation, many of the older saints wept instead of rejoiced, presumably because they were so disappointed. This compared to what we had? What is this compared to what they had? When they built that temple in Solomon's day, they were a free people, right? Solomon had a dominion that was expansive. And now they're home, but they're not free. They're under the rule of the Persians. Solomon's day, they had peace with their enemies, but here they're being harassed by the provinces around them. Solomon's day, Solomon could hire special craftsmen, skilled artisans to come and work, but what do they have today? In Solomon's day, the temple was was covered in gold on the inside, but how could they ever afford that now? In Solomon's day, they had the Ark of the Covenant, but apparently the Ark of the Covenant is lost for good here. You don't see it anymore. In Solomon's day, they had great numbers of people, but in this day, only a small portion of the Jews who went into captivity, only a small portion of actually come back to Jerusalem and are rebuilding. So here's the people. They're overwhelmed by this task. They're looking at, at, this, at this foundation, the beginnings of work, and they're thinking, what's this all going to come to? Is this worth anything? And then they're remembering, of course, the prophets like Ezekiel, who said the temple's going to be glorious. And they're thinking, this isn't it. 
This is not the right time to build. God is not in this. Now think of the time frame here. It's just one month since they first responded to Haggai's message and started rebuilding. And already now, they're falling apart. Satan's suggestions are powerful, aren't they? If Satan can't allure them to prioritize their own homes over God's house, and God overcomes that one with Haggai's first message, then Satan tempts them in a new way through discouragement, saying it's not time to build yet. We must wait for the Lord. We, we have to wait till God sends us more help and more blessings. Now is not the time to build. And so under the cover of truth, supposedly, we care about God's glory. Many of them say we should stop building. This kind of thinking and these kinds of schemes by Satan did not end at the end of the Old Testament. One commentator from the Reformation era 500 years ago complained that, that people were looking at the church and saying, you know, well, it's not pure enough. It's not holy enough. I can't be joined to this. We still have it today, don't we? There are many who wander here and there but can never settle down in a congregation because, you know, preacher's not good enough, or the singing's not good enough, or it's too small, or they don't have these programs, or, or they're not a holy enough people, they're not seeking the Lord, or they're not, they don't have enough missions emphasis, or whatever it might be. And they might even in their minds say, you know, I just want a church that honors God, I just want a church that glorifies God, but then they're using God's word against God's word and refusing the command to be united to the church, to submit to elders, to be connected to the body, As if the Lord approves that. An appearance of the right motive. And so they feel abandoned to justify. Justified to abandon the church. We have that, don't we? C.S. Lewis was insightful, right? In that scenario to, to have a demon suggest that when he hears about the glory of the church and then he sees it. It'll be a different matter. So it often is for us. It's hard to believe, isn't it? This is it? This is the glory? This happens though, not just in the church, right? It happens in the home. And fathers, we face this, don't we, with leading our families in the study of the word and family devotions, which one of us hasn't felt like, tonight is not the night. I'm just not feeling it. My, my heart's not warm. It's, it's too busy. We won't read the Bible tonight. Or, or we've launched into reading the Bible, and then we get lost or confused. We don't know how to teach our children what this says, and and we hear Satan saying to us, what a joke, you bumbling around. You know, you should wait till the Lord gives you more strength or wisdom. You, you shouldn't be doing this right now. And so instead of getting out a study Bible and digging in or looking at Matthew Henry's commentary online, we just shut the Bible and pray and go our way. And it happens personally for each one of us in the area of sanctification. Elders come to our family visit and they say, have you grown in the Lord this past year? And you think, I don't know that I have. Still struggling with the same things I was struggling with last time you were here. We repent of our sin and we set out, we're never going to do it again. And then as soon as we stumble, Satan is there to say, boy, this is all kind of worthless, isn't it? You get all excited and exercised to fight against sin and here you just blow it. You, you need to wait for times of greater mercies and help from God. And so Satan would lead the church into disappointment and discouragement. Here, less than one month after they have begun rebuilding, they're ready to give up again. 
And so John Calvin in his commentary rightly comments, and hence also we may learn how necessary it is for us to be constantly stimulated or stirred up. For Satan can easily find out a thousand impediments by which he may turn us aside from the right course, except or unless God often repeats his exhortations to keep us awake. Isn't that true? I suspect if we really were honest with ourselves about our discouragements, and if we really saw this as a spiritual battle, it's not just about optimism, pessimism, it's a spiritual battle, that we would see our worship services filled up morning and evening as those who desperately cry out to God, Lord, save me, because left to myself, I only see with human eyes, it's not very glorious, and I need your word to reign over me and show me the glory. For what was the way of Christ encouraging his Old Testament church? Did he Amidst their discouragement, bring them a present of gold? Did he send them some, some special artisans from Persia? Did he suddenly take away all their enemies? No, he sent them a preacher. The prophet Haggai and the prophet Zechariah. And the Lord operates the same way today. Ephesians chapter 4 says that he's given pastors and teachers to equip the saints for ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, so that we might not be tossed about by craftiness and deceit. He has given us a prophetic word. But you know what? And this is painful to admit. Sometimes we'd rather flounder in our discouragements than to bow our necks to the word of God and say, speak to me, save me, and raise me up. And I know that because I've seen it in myself. We have a strange pleasure in floundering about in a mud puddle filled with reasons to be discouraged rather than to hear the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ and to humble ourselves and say, Lord, deliver me by your prophetic word. Evaporate the lies of Satan and fill my heart with hope. And if you say, well, that's not a very cheery word for the Christmas season, Pastor. Well, it is a cheery word if you want to be delivered from the false cheers of the season and know the real hope who is Jesus Christ. Christ is known by his word. And you can't lay eyes on the glory of Jesus, but in his word. And Christ has commissioned the proclamation of his word. And that means the only way we'll be saved from our hopelessness, the only way we will survive the lies and deceit of Satan is by the power of the word. And with that, the fellowship of the saints. Hebrews 10, let's consider how to encourage one another in love and good deeds, not abandoning our meeting together, as is the habit of some people, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
What a gracious Savior we have. He knows our need. He meets us in our need. He doesn't hate his people in Haggai's day and say, you useless people, can't you grow up? No, he, he stoops down to minister and to care for them and to lift them up by his word. And he does that today by the preaching of his word, and he does that today by giving us the communion of the saints to surround us with brothers and sisters, to encourage our heart. But if we won't make use of the means God has given, the preaching of the word and the fellowship of his people, then we are ungrateful for his gifts. And then we are choosing the idol of discouragement over the joy of encouragement in the Lord. If we will not make use of the Lord's gifts, then we're living in a self-imposed, solitary confinement when the living Lord would love to speak into our hearts life and peace. So Christ seeks his people in the middle of their discouragement. But secondly, Christ proclaims his presence in the middle of his commands. Notice that secondly. When the covenant Lord sees the discouragement of his people, he doesn't, he doesn't give them a pass and say, you know, it's too much for you. You go run and play, go have a snack, and I'll build the temple. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He calls them to persevere in building. He actually issues three commands here in verses 4 and 5. The command be strong, the command work, and the command do not fear. Be strong, he says, because we're prone to giving in to weakness. When we become discouraged, we fall apart. God says be strong. The second command is work. Work is an essential command because when we get discouraged, we stop working. We all know this in our own lives, right? When we get discouraged or hopeless, we give up sometimes even the most basic things, most obvious things. I read in a Christian counseling book years ago that housewives and ministers were especially prone to depression because they, among others, set their own day-to-day schedule. And so what happens sometimes is we get lazy and don't do what we're supposed to do, And then we feel a little discouraged, so we don't feel like doing anything, so we do even less than we're supposed to, and then we get more discouraged, and it's a downward spiral, feeling more and more guilty for doing less and less. When we get discouraged, we give up work. Sometimes doctors have to tell people, you have to eat. You have to keep eating. God says, you must keep working. And then the command, do not fear. Fear paralyzes us. We're afraid of launching out. But these three commands, be strong, do the work, do not fear, are not not self-helps for for those who can pull themselves up by their own shoelaces. These commands come wrapped around one central promise that the Lord gives at the end of verse 4 when he says, be strong, work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. So be strong because I'm with you. And somebody has said that despondency says, I can't, so I won't. But faith says, I can't, but you can, so I will. 
be strong because I'm with you. And then work. Work. God does not part the heavens and come down and perform a miracle to instantly construct the temple. We love instant solutions, especially in our day and age. We like things to happen fast. And God's ordinary program through history is little steps. Work, 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 work in the power of the Lord. The Lord could build this whole temple in the snap of his fingers, couldn't he? The Lord could just send the angels down from heaven and build up this temple. But instead, he glorifies himself by commanding the participation of his people. By assigning them a task. And by calling them to work. Satan wants to tell us it's all useless. You know, if God really wanted this, God would just do it. Haven't you ever said to yourself about your own sin? If God wanted me to have victory over this, he would do it. I've prayed to him. And God says, no. Set yourself under the word every day. Read it. Listen to it. Pray it. And then fight against your sin. And when you stumble, repent and get up and fight again. That's the way of sanctification. And Satan says, no. If he really wanted you to be holy, he would just give you holiness. Work, God says. Work at your relationship with the Lord. Work at your parenting skills. Work at your marriage. Work at becoming serviceable to Christ's body. Work at evangelizing your neighbor. Work at learning how to worship God with all your heart. For God is with you. For God is with you. And then do not be afraid. For the Lord is with you. We've been trained in a culture that suggests feelings and emotions are simply spontaneous responses and therefore you can't be guilty of them or do anything to change them. And then you open the Bible and you read, don't fear and don't be anxious and don't worry and don't be angry. You thought, I thought these were just emotions I have I can't do anything about. Who is this Lord who commands me not to fear? Who is this Lord who commands me not to get angry? It's the living God. And he says, I am with you. These are not cheap words when the Lord says, I am with you. Or We've been singing all throughout the season of Emmanuel, right? Emmanuel, God with us. And what is that? That's... That's God's Son and human flesh. That's God the Holy Spirit with us. That's the product of suffering, the death of the Lord Jesus upon the cross. God is not with everybody. He's with those who know the blood of redemption and the outpouring of His Spirit. And what God is doing here then is he's turning our eyes away from ourselves to himself. He's taking these people, Haggai's day, and saying, you're focused on you and what you can do, but I am with you. Lift up your eyes and behold the Lord of hosts, the God of armies. I am with you, as I've promised, and my spirit is with you. And then finally, this morning, Christ prophesies his glory in the middle of the lackluster. People are looking at this temple and think it's nothing. And the Lord says, there's going to be more glory here than 
you've ever seen. Verse 6, For thus says the Lord of hosts once more, and it is a little while I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land. I will shake all nations. They shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Now, we saw the tabernacle get filled with glory, right? The Shekinah, the, 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 the presence, the glory cloud came down and filled the tabernacle. He couldn't enter it for a time. And then we saw Solomon's temple dedicated and the, the glory came down, filled the temple. They couldn't enter it for a time. We never read of that happening of this second temple. The second temple, as we read in Ezra, gets rebuilt. It's four years later, and this temple gets rebuilt, completed, dedicated. But we don't read about the glory cloud coming upon it. And yet, the Lord says to his people who think this temple will come to nothing, I'm going to do a mighty thing. I'm going to shake heaven and earth and fill this place with glory. I'm going to make the nations come pouring in here. And bringing all their treasures and gifts into this place. All their prized possessions. Now Israel was a a poor people, a small people. Why would the nations bring their treasures to Israel? Why would they adorn God's temple? Well, because they will come to realize what God says in verse 8. That the silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. And they'll come and say, he is the Lord, he is God. This is, this is the place where heaven meets earth. This is, this is where the true God is worshipped. God's going to shake the earth, fill it with glory. God shook the earth when he brought his people out of, Israel, out of Egypt. Shook the, the mountain at Mount Sinai. He split the Red Sea and brought his people forth. But God will do something even greater. Even greater, he's going to shake the world and the Gentiles will come streaming in. And God's going to give this temple a greater glory than than any temple before. It will be more beautiful, more radiant, more fulfilling than any former temple. It will be filled, he says, with, with peace. And in this place, I will give peace. And how's all that going to happen? Well, it's not by the church making the temple glorious. God does want to be honored by their building up the structure, but they can't fill it with glory. God says, I will fill it with glory. There's going to be some precursors here. Already in Haggai's day, the king of Persia is going to command for the governors around the area to pay for the rebuilding of the temple and to give whatever's needed for its rebuilding. Some people point to to King Herod in Jesus' day before and before that, who King Herod, if you don't know this, but this temple that was built here goes through a a massive remodeling project under King Herod. And some would say, look it, the world is giving their riches to the temple. John Calvin actually says that that's actually a trick of the devil to distract the people with a building instead of looking for Jesus. But however you want to read that, these things are some kind of prelude to the greater thing that's coming to this temple. What does come to this temple? What glory does come to this temple? Well, do you remember when Jesus was born? Mary and Joseph bring him up to the temple as a baby. And Simeon, who's been waiting, waiting, and waiting, proclaims, Lord, you're now letting your servant depart in peace. My eyes have seen your salvation, 
Here is the light to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. As he looks upon the face of Jesus. Christ will grow up and he will come to this temple. He will preach here. He will cleanse the temple. And he will be crucified outside the city. And what will happen? He will rise from the dead. He will ascend into heaven. And he will pour out his Holy Spirit. And the preaching of the gospel will take place at this temple. Remember that? Peter in the temple raising the layman. The apostles boldly testifying in the temple of the Lord Jesus. And Christ being the fulfillment of this temple himself. Christ the temple of God. Who by his death has brought peace with God. And Christ building us the temple of God. Where Christ dwells by his Holy Spirit. Christ is the center of the upheaval that comes. And here we are. We look at the Old Testament believers as the Old Testament church, and so we easily just transfer all this to ourselves. But we should recognize that, that for most of us, we're not Jews. And when we read about the Gentiles coming then, we should look at ourselves and say, the Lord kept his word, here we are. By his grace and mercy, we have come into the temple of God. We have met God in Jesus Christ, and we have become the dwelling place of God by the Holy Spirit. Finally, it will be fulfilled at Christ's return. Revelation 21 says of the new city, the new Jerusalem, that the city doesn't need the sun or moon. The glory of God lights it up. But then it says the nations will walk by its light. And the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. And the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. It was never, never, never God's intention just to save Israel. It was always God's intention. He said it to Abraham, make you a blessing to the nations, the families of the earth. It was always God's intention to do something cosmic. And to assemble a people of every nation, tribe, tongue, and language. To glorify his name forever. What do you see when you see the Lord's house? Not this building, but his people. What do you see when you see Jesus Christ? When he was crucified, the one you can't lay eyes upon. What do you see when you do your work as an elder or a deacon? And it seems so small, maybe, to make a visit, to speak a few words to someone, to offer a prayer with them, to, to give them some help in their need. Would we trade what we have today for Solomon's temple? Do you find yourself saying, I just wish we had that temple of Solomon. Those were glory days. Oh, it was so much better back then. That's what some of these older people were doing. Haggai's day. Oh, the good old days. And the Lord says, no. No. I'm leading you forward. This temple will be more glorious than anything before it. And though Christ has come, God is still saying this to us, that the ultimate thing, the new heavens, the new earth, and the the day when the scaffolding comes down and the church shines in all of her glory, then at last we will see it. We look back to the cross. 
God has shaken the heaven and the earth and the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the, the tombs quaking, the bodies coming out, the gospel going forward, the Gentiles coming in. But God will shake the earth yet once more, the writer of Hebrews says. He will shake it once more at the coming of our Lord Jesus. And on that day, as one writer says, the rubble that surrounds us in our lives and in our churches is not the end of the story. But there's more to come. A cosmically happy ending in which all of Christ's people will be transformed by him into his likeness. Can you believe that this morning? Just pause and think about your greatest discouragement today. What is it that that weighs upon you? What is that thing that makes you want to give it up? What is that disappointment that so disillusions you? You don't really want to press on anymore. And then bring it before the word of the Lord Jesus. And hear his voice proclaiming to you that the glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. It's about before God. Our gracious God in heaven, we are humble before you. As you bring us to grips with the reality that our singing and praise cannot by itself make our lives meaningful. That our decorations and cheerful words cannot bring hope. You alone can and you alone have through our Lord Jesus We praise you, God in heaven, that you have brought forth the glory, your only begotten, and you have filled your temple with glory. We pray that he would fill our lives with that hope and that certainty that we will see the day at last when all the rubble is removed, when the building project is completed, when the scaffolding comes down, and when the glory of your church shines eternal. Oh, God, lift our hearts up. Satan still wars upon us, pointing out to us things to be disappointed about, to be frustrated about, to be discouraged about. We we are easy victims. But Christ the Word is greater. Christ the Word who spoke through Haggai. Christ the Word who speaks through us. O Lord God in heaven, visit us with grace. And fill us with hope through Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.